0: bible reading this morning it's matthew chapter 5 verses 13 to 20. you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot you are the light of the world a town built on a hill cannot be hidden Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven.
1: Taking a, letter, or a lesson from Mike Rater uh, to spit all over the front front rows. I'm probably going to struggle to get out to the sides, but uh, Sean, you're well within the firing lines. It'll wipe off really easily, yes. A non-stick surface, is that what you're saying? (laughs) Has anyone seen this movie? It's very badly thing, but it's called The Prestige. Oh, come on. There's a few more, there's a few more. I'm not going to spoil this movie for you this morning, because you need to go and get this. It's 2006... It's a great film, Uh, Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, Scarlett Johansson, Michael Caine, uh, really good film. And at the heart of the film is an imitation. There is a very cunning imitation that is so good. Shall Shall we reciprocate and sing happy birthday from in here? Okay, when they stop. Ready? One, two, three. Uh, Okay, back to the sermon. (laughs) Hope she enjoyed that. She loves it when we recognise her birthday, I'm sure. But at the heart of this film is an imitation that is so good that even the guy who is perpetrating this imitation, uh, his wife is taken in with tragic consequences. Imitations sometimes can be so good. I'm not talking about the cheap imitation Rolex that you picked up in Bangkok, uh, but sometimes you look at modern movies sometimes and it's hard to work out what is actually real and what is actually just the CGI, the uh, uh, computer-generated images that are there. And it's actually a really important question to ask about how you spot what is an imitation because... There is such a thing as imitation Christianity, an imitation faith that is so good that some people who practice the imitation think that they actually have the real thing. So this morning what we're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount is a passage where Jesus lays out for us the difference between the fake and the reality. Like all good sermons, it's got multiple points, and I've really worked hard this week to give you five, all starting with the letter F, okay? We know that good sermons are built on alliteration. Uh, You are going to have features, function, failure, fulfillment, and focus. Anticipation, it's high now, isn't it? Okay. Last week, we looked at the features of those who are in the kingdom, Remember the Beatitudes, those blessed statements. Not blessed, those blessed statements. Blessed are poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus goes on. We need to just remind ourselves that what Jesus is talking about here is not the criteria to enter. So therefore, if you do these things... Jesus will let you into his kingdom. What he's talking about is the character of those who are already in. So when you are in the kingdom, when you are one of Jesus' people, when he is your king, this is what you look like. Poor in spirit, meek, mourning, merciful, and so on. And that uh, that basic character comes from the way that you actually enter. So if you, uh, if you look in your Bibles there, and you've got chapter 4, verse 17, you see that Jesus invites people into the kingdom. How does he do it? He announces that the kingdom of heaven has come near, and he tells them what they need to do, which purely and simply is repent. Repent just means to turn away from, to reject, to turn away from anything anything that you put in the place of this king anything that you are tempted to give your allegiance to anything that you seek your significance from anything that determines the shape of your life that is what jesus is saying turn away from all rivals and turn to him as king reject any other allegiance other than the allegiance that you give to him Turn away from self, that self-reliance, that self-sufficiency. Reject any imitation king. And then Jesus says, the kind of person who does that, who comes to him with repentance, enters the kingdom, this is what they look like. He gives us that core characteristic, that first beatitude, that first blessed statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember last week, just a brief recap, because I think this is so important. This is like sitting in the job interview where Jesus is saying, okay, so what do you bring to my kingdom? And the poor in spirit answer is, absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. The only thing I bring is liabilities, not assets. You'd actually be better off without me, Jesus. I bring nothing to this kingdom other than my need. So you remember the Rock of Ages, that song that we sang last week, uh, that old hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to your cross I cling, Naked come to you for dress, Helpless look to you for grace, Foul I to the fountain fly, Wash me, Saviour, or I die his need again and again and again, he displays poor in spirit. We've sung it. That new song that James and the band introduced us to, that desperate need. Were you to count my sins, I could not stand that recognition of need. And Jesus says this is the foundation This is the basic character of everyone in the kingdom. And upon that is mourning for sin, meekness, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. These things all flow out of that poverty in spirit. They all described citizens of the the kingdom. But that last one's a warning as well, isn't it? Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness. Citizens of the kingdom, citizens of Jesus' kingdom, are not universally loved. Jesus actually said, if they hate you, remember that they hated me first. If they did that to the king, what will they do to his followers? What else should we expect? So if that is the features, what are the citizens of the kingdom to do? What is their function? Now, we're going to read from this passage that Jesus turns our attention to. Verse 13. This is what the citizens of the kingdom do. You are the salt of the earth. What do you notice about that? It's a description and not a command. In the same way as the Beatitudes are not saying, if you do this, you will get in, Jesus is not saying, go out there and be the salt of the earth. He's actually saying, if you have come to him with that poverty of spirit, if you have turned to him and put your trust in him and turned from all rivals, you will be, you are the salt of the earth. Now, salt is something in our culture that's not very good, is it? You go to the doctor, they tell you you've got to cut down on the salt, it's going to build up and give you a heart attack and all that kind of stuff. So for us, we think salt bad. But in those times, no refrigeration, you wanted to preserve meat. How do you do it? You rub salt into it. Salt preserved, and the same as now, why do we put salt in our food? Even though we know it's bad for us, uh, it enhances the flavour, doesn't it? So Jesus is actually saying there is something about the citizens of the kingdom that will both prevent corruption, prevent the rottenness of this world progressing as fast as it might, as well as there's something about the citizens of the kingdom that will make this world a better place, that will flavour it, that will savour it. That is what Jesus is saying will happen When you come to him in faith, when you come to him and you turn from all rivals, the character of the king will become the character of his subjects, and the world will notice. What's the danger? The danger, Jesus says, is is that you lose that distinctiveness. If salt loses its saltiness... How can it be made salty again? If it's contaminated, if it loses its distinctiveness, if it's adulterated with the world, the character of the kingdom will not be seen. Salt is only good while it's different from the thing that it actually preserves or the thing that actually flavors. It has no value if it just blends in. You may as well just get a handful of dirt and throw it in. It's no longer good for anything, Jesus says, except be thrown out and be trampled underfoot. Jesus cautions us. You are this. Don't lose that. He goes on. You are the light of the world. He doesn't say be the light of the world. He says you are the light of the world. It's inevitable that the kingdom, the kingdom life, will shine out of the kingdom citizen. Now, light is a universally positive kind of image, yes? We don't appreciate it, can I say, because we can walk into a room and flick a switch, except for in South Australia, where for three, four days at a time, sometimes we can't. Uh, But generally, generally light comes easy for us. But all of us have probably been in situations where you've been in pitch black, and I'm talking... Pitch black, you know, there's my hand, there's my face, I cannot see it. Yes, you've been in that situation. uh, A youth minister back at uh, my home church uh, used to take guys, I presume girls as well, caving. And there was one part, they were down uh, in the Shoalhaven region of New South Wales, caving. And there's, uh, I heard this story, I wasn't actually there, but there was a bit where there was a, a slope and then a bit of a drop. And I understand the drop was about a metre, maybe a little bit over a metre. But the idea was you got on your backside and you slid down the slope and then you just plopped off the end and there you are. Uh, But uh, about halfway down the point of no return kind of thing, uh, Ken starts screaming at the guy who's sliding down this slope. No way of pulling himself back. Stop, stop, stop! And the guy, scrabbling, by all reports, trying to save himself, goes off, think he's dead hits the bottom. He's all okay. Probably died of a heart attack, but um, not that I heard. But the unknown, the unknown terrifies us, doesn't it? I once watched a documentary on Jack the Ripper as an adult, can I say. And no one else was at home. And what I did is I walked down the hall and I'd turn on that light and I'd walk back and turn off that one. And I'd leapfrog the light switches down to my bedroom that was at the far end of the house. I, was so... I knew that Jack the Ripper wasn't in the house. <laughs> but the darkness terrified me. The darkness terrified me. And Jesus says, in a world of darkness, the kingdom citizen is light. They shine forth the character of the kingdom with its hope and its grace into a a world that is desperately ignorant of it. What's the light? Well, verse 16 tells us it's the good deeds. Jesus says, you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. You put it on a stand. You give light to everyone in the house. The same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good deeds, Jesus says, and glorify your Father in heaven. Good deeds. The life of the kingdom lived in obedience to the king shines out in this world of darkness. And what's the danger? danger is, is that when Jesus says, you will be persecuted, that we back off, that we run away and hide. We only have Christian friends and we hide. We know the phrase, don't we? We hide our light under a bushel. You've heard it. Jesus says, there will be persecution but do not hide. Let your light shine. They will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, obviously, familiar words, and they are familiar for what Jesus' audience would have heard as well because they were familiar with these, these images. But if you were there and you were an Israelite, you'd probably be thinking, actually, you've tried this before and it hasn't worked. There's a failure issue here because the light of the world in the old testament is israel so god says in isaiah 42 i the lord have called you in righteousness i will take hold of your hand i will keep you and make you a covenant for the people and a light for the gentiles the nations that are in darkness to open the eyes that are blind to free the captives from prison to release from dungeon those who sit in darkness you might be familiar with i think it's isaiah chapter 7 that great passage we read at christmas those living in the land of darkness a light has dawned this was meant to be israel and it wasn't read ezekiel 36 read isaiah 52 paul picks them both up in romans chapter 2 you who boast in the law paul says to the Jew. Do you dishonor God by breaking that? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed. God is cursed, not glorified, because of you. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's easy to see why you might be a little disillusioned. We've tried this before. It hasn't worked. So what is Jesus doing? Is he doing something that is different? You might be thinking at this point, okay, the Old Testament, we had the law, we had all that kind of stuff. Maybe this is something totally new. Well, Jesus gives us that answer as we move on to our fourth point. He tells us what the relationship that he and we are to have to God's law. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. He knows that that's in their thinking. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, this is a massive issue. If you pick up the commentaries and read them, they will actually tell you that this passage is one of the hardest in the Bible to understand. It's one of the ones that you actually... Because it's not just what Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament law is, it's what our relationship to the Old Testament law... And have you read some of them? They are really weird. Um, am I expected when I find a bird's nest fallen on a road that I, I have to know what I'm to do with the... I can take the young, but I can't... Uh, whatever. I can't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Um, there's all sorts of laws... Is there. Am I expected to keep this? I think most Christians just kind of put it in the too hard basket, let's walk away. But Jesus gives us the answer. And he says he doesn't come merely to do the law, because if all Jesus did was obey the law perfectly, and he did, if that's all he did, there is no reason why we wouldn't have to do it also. It would still bind us. But Jesus doesn't doesn't say, I've come to obey the law. He actually says, I've come to fulfill it. And not just the law, as in the legal code, but he says the law and the prophets, shorthand for the Old Testament. What he's saying is, I'm here to fulfill 39 books of the Bible. The Old Testament points to me, and I am the one who fulfills them. Jesus is saying the Old Testament is a one-way street that points to him. And if you read the Old Testament and it doesn't lead you to Jesus, you're actually not reading it right. That is what he is saying. Yes, there's the direct prophecies. Isaiah 53, things like that, that speak of the Messiah who's going to come. But Jesus is saying every single bit, the entire trajectory... ...of the Old Testament ends with me. Everything that this looked forward to... ...everything that the Old Testament spoke of... ...let me illustrate this... ...the sacrificial system... ...you know the whole going up to the temple... ...offering goats, bulls, rams, doves, whatever... uh, ...for in payment of your sin... ...yes? Familiar with this idea... ...the faithful Jew would go up to the temple... And they would offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. They would go up to a priest who was an imperfect priest that had to offer sacrifices for their own sin as well as the sins of the nation. They would go up to a temple that had been destroyed a number of times depending on where you were in the history of Israel. They would go up to an imperfect temple and offer imperfect sacrifices through an imperfect priest to a perfect God. It creates... A need, doesn't it? Is there a way out of this cycle? And Jesus is saying, yes, it's me. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice offered once for all. That he is the perfect high priest who doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin. He is perfect. And he is a priest forever by by virtue of his immortal life. He always lives to speak for us. And not only that, he is the point where a holy God meet a sinful people and sin is atoned for. Jesus himself is the temple. The trajectory of law and sacrifice and temple and priesthood comes to Jesus. That's why you don't need a priest, because you've got one. That's why you don't need a sacrifice, because you've got one. That's why we don't do those things now, because Jesus has fulfilled it. Does that make sense? Read Hebrews if you're interested in taking this further. Hebrews unpacks this beautifully, absolutely beautifully. Jesus says the Old Testament is valid until the end of creation, until all things have been fulfilled, because it points to him as a testament. So it's not there for his people to do. Does that mean we're free? No, Jesus not only fulfills, but he transforms. You'd expect that maybe he might make things easier. The Jews failed again and again and again, and Romans too. God's name is blasphemed amongst the nations because of you. So just drop the standard, you know? When I was at Bible college, we had a, an over-enthusiastic Greek lecturer uh, who set us a Greek paper that all but six of the class failed. And so what he then did was he just reset the exam and just lowered the bar. Does Jesus do that? Does he come in and go, actually, 100% of you failed this one? Okay, we've got to make it easier. Let's just drop it down and make it simpler. Can I just say, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus transforms this, but he commands us to obey. Verse 19, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands. Now, these commands, he's not talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. The King's law that he is bringing out. He's talking about the great commandments. Love God, love your neighbour. He's talking about the law reflected and fulfilled in Christ. And if you set aside those you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Note that grace still operates here, doesn't it? It's not that if you obey these, you will get in. No, you're in. But obedience really does matter. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says it's really important how you live. And you see him reflect the law. Next week we're going to start to look at a whole series of examples that he gives us. But verse 21, again and again and again Jesus says this formula. You have heard it was said, then what's he do? He often quotes the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament. You've heard that it was said this, but I tell you. And for those who are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, does Jesus go up or down? He goes up. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, anyone who despises his brother in his heart, he commits murder. If you hate your brother, you commit murder. Don't commit adultery. But if you're committing lust, you're committing adultery. Jesus actually takes it up. And he gives us a challenge that his righteousness and the righteousness of his people must be radically more than was already on display. He tells us in verse 20 that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that certainly not is written in a way that says, never ever under any circumstances. You are not getting in. But we don't, we don't feel the shock of this, do we? I want you all to exercise here. When I say the word Pharisee, what comes into your first thing that comes into your mind? Anyone? Robes? Okay. I think I heard someone else. Hypocrite? If we actually call someone a a Pharisee, we're actually saying you're a hypocrite. We're used to this. But that's not how Jesus' contemporaries would have seen it. They would have seen it like this. If you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be smarter than Albert Einstein. You kind of go, theory of relativity. You know, I don't even understand it, let alone come up to it. Or you've actually got to be stronger... Stronger than the 2017 strongest man in the world, Eddie the Beast. We just don't match up, do we? I've got two so far. I'll have a picture of Sean the Beast up there soon. Or you've got to be more beautiful than the supermodel. That's three, (laughs) Sean. three strikes and you're out brother i think that's what it is but paul uh jesus here is saying you've got to have a righteousness that just is just in a different category and we this should floor us but our problem is that this is really familiar we don't feel the shock the shock of what jesus is saying you've got to have a better righteousness than the apostle paul The Apostle Paul, who wrote this in Philippians 3, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, Paul writes, in other words, trust in their own spiritual resume and their pedigree, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. That's what the good Jews were. Of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew. This guy was the insider. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. As for zeal, he... He was so zealous for God, he murdered Christians, persecuting the church. And as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. This man ticked every single box. And Jesus is saying, if you want to get into my kingdom, you've got to do it better. Does that scare you? It should. But it should also make us look for something else. Because what Jesus is not talking about is a righteousness like them, but a righteousness that surpasses them. He says, whatever were gains to me, this is Paul writing, I now consider them loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them garbage. If I told you what that word was, you'd all be shocked because I've sworn in church. It's excrement. But it's the coarse word to describe excellent. I consider them to be... Fill in the blank that I might gain Christ. My resume I have put through the shredder, and it does not even come to mind again. I bring nothing that I might gain Christ and be found in him, and not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the Lord, because that's nothing. That can't work. Paul has been playing the wrong game by the wrong rules but one that comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The Pharisees and the scribes had rewritten the questions in the exam, if you want to put it like that. And no matter how well they answered them, they were actually answering the wrong question. Their answer was, I must try harder. I must be perfect. And Jesus is saying, that will never work what is the criteria that he lays as the base foundation for the life of the kingdom poor in spirit what's the action that the disciple takes to enter repentance turning away from anything that they trust in other than christ It's all a matter of focus. Jesus is not into religion. I hate it when people ask me, am I religious? Do you get that question? And I just, no, I am not religious and neither is Jesus. But I am a Christian and I have a relationship with God through Christ. That's what I want to say and sometimes I say it better than others. Religion is that rules and those laws and if I obey, then I am accepted But Jesus says that is the imitation. That is the thing that will never get you in. And the danger, brothers and sisters, is that we sometimes deceive ourselves. And even though we might know about grace and know about the gospel and know about those things, we operate as if we actually are saved through our works. That God is actually lucky to have us. You know, such wonderful people like us jesus blows that out of the water tim keller says it beautifully he says there's two ways of being your own savior and lord one is to break all the moral laws set your own course i'm going to do it my way you know the whole sinatra thing and there's one by keeping all the moral laws and being very very good The Apostle Paul tried that. As for righteousness through the law, faultless. God owed him. He was accepted not because of any grace, any mercy from God. He was accepted because he was acceptable. Both irreligion and religion, Jesus contrasts them both to true biblical life in the kingdom true biblical christianity the religious person thinks they have no need of grace except for when they sin and then it breaks them it crushes them it grinds them down and so this person will often oscillate between pride looking down at others condemning others and despair when they've actually sinned they've actually fallen short and they can't avoid it they will minimize sin to those external actions but jesus will not let us do that there was a story i heard of a man who was held up as a great christian pillar within his community his wife and children had died in a car accident and his endurance under suffering was an immense encouragement to so many just a few years after that he committed suicide Why? Because he was sexually attracted to a woman that he wasn't married to. And he could not face the fact that he was a sinner in the need of grace because he had built himself up as, I am such a wonderful Christian. I have done all these things. And when the chink in the armour came, it all fell apart. Jesus is saying that is not Christianity. That's religion. And in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus' enemy, if he has an enemy, Jesus' target is not the person who wants nothing to do with God. Jesus' target is the person who thinks that they are right with God based on what they do. The scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, those who think that by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good, God loves them because of that. God accepts them because of that. Paul's appraisal, he had it all. It is absolute rubbish. It is is fit for the sewer. That's what he says. That's not Christianity, Jesus says. That's not Christianity, Paul says. That's not the Christianity that the Old Testament pointed to. That's not life in the kingdom. Life in the kingdom comes through faith in the king. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus says, you don't need just a little bit of a tweak. You need a whole makeover. You don't need just a a little bit of an improvement. You need an entire transformation. You cannot tweak your Christian life to make yourself acceptable to God. To be in the kingdom is not to focus on yourself, not to look at your own achievements It's to turn away from that, to despair of that, and to look to Christ and his achievements, to look to the grace of the King that is there in front of us, and to hear that it is not your performance, but his grace and mercy and love, and to focus on that. And if you are going to shine as light in the dark world, if you are going to have that savour and that flavour and that preservative function as the salt of the earth. You do that by being focused on Christ at the beginning and through the entire Christian life. Focused on Christ, on his love. Let his love break your heart, melt it and remake it every single day. I want to end with a quote by a man called Sinclair Ferguson. I think it says it brilliantly. When we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the lengths to which God's love goes in order to win us back to himself. We would almost think that God loved us more than he loves his own son. Self-inflicted, really, isn't it? Let's just finish, just wait. (laughs) They're all saved by grace. (laughs) We would almost think that God loved us more than he loves his son. Does that baffle you, that statement? That God might love you more than he loves Christ. That he gave Christ so you could be his We cannot measure his love by any other standard. He is saying, I love you this much. The cross is the heart of the gospel. It makes the gospel good news. If you take the cross out of the gospel, it is no longer good news. Christ died for us. He stood in our place before God's judgment seat. He has borne our sins. God has done something on the cross which we could never do for ourselves. But he does something to us as well as something for us. Through the cross, he persuades us that he loves us. Brothers and sisters, the cross is at the heart of the life of the kingdom. As we read the Sermon on the Mount, if we lose sight of Calvary, if we lose sight of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we turn this into law and we think if we can do it by our own strength, therefore he will let us in. But Jesus says no. To get into the kingdom is through repentance. The character, the foundational character of the kingdom is poverty in spirit, abject despair at my own resources and casting myself upon the measureless grace of Christ. And as we deal with each of these things and as God's word searches us, it should take us back again and again and again to the cross and the grace and the forgiveness that is ours in Christ, and as it does, it is there that we find the strength to live. In the gift of righteousness, from that flows obedience. Let's pray. Lord, your mercy and grace—they—they they overwhelm us. If we are honest with ourselves.